This is Nick Treadwell and you are listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. In the low-ceilinged canteen deep underground, the lunch queue jerked slowly forward. The room was already very full and deafeningly noisy. From the grill at the counter, the steam of stew came pouring forth with a sour metallic smell which did not quite overcome the fumes of the victory gin. On the far side of the room, there was a small bar, a mere hole in the wall, where gin could be bought at ten cents the large nip. Just the man I was looking for, said a voice at Winston's back. He turned round. It was his friend, Sim, who worked in the research department. Perhaps friend was not exactly the right word. You did not have friends nowadays. You had comrades, but there was... But there were some comrades whose society was pleasanter than that of others. Sim was a philologist, a specialist in newspeak. Indeed, he was one of the enormous team of experts now engaged in compiling the 11th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. He was a tiny creature, smaller than Winston, with dark hair and large protuberant eyes, at once mournful and derisive which seemed to search your face closely while he was speaking to you. I want to ask you whether you've got any razor blades, he said. Not one, said Winston, with a sort of guilty haste. I've tried all over the place. They don't exist any longer. Everyone kept talking, asking you for razor blades. Actually, he had two unused ones which he was hoarding up. There had been a famine of them for months past, At any given moment, there was some necessary article which the party shops were unable to supply. Sometimes it was buttons, sometimes it was darning wool, sometimes it was shoelaces. At present, it was razor blades. You could only get hold of them, if at all, by scrounging more or less furtively on the free market. I've been using the same razor blades for six weeks, he added, untruthfully. The queue gave another jerk forward. As they halted, he turned and faced Sim again. Each of them took a greasy metal tray from a pile at the edge of the counter. Did you go and see the prisoners hanged yesterday? said Sim. I was working, said Winston, indifferently. I shall see it on the flicks, I suppose. A very inadequate substitute, said Sim. His mocking eyes rolled over Winston's face. I know you the eyes seemed to say. I see through you. I know you very well. Why you didn't go to see those prisoners hanged. In an intellectual way, Sim was venomously orthodox. He would talk with a disagreeable gloating satisfaction of helicopter raids on enemy villages and the trials and confessions of thought criminals, the executions in the cellars of the Ministry of Love. Talking to him was largely a matter of getting him away from such subjects and entangling him, if possible, in the technicalities of newspeak, on which he was an authoritative and interesting. Winston turned his head a little aside to avoid the scrutiny of of the large, dark eyes. It was a good hanging, said Sim, reminiscently. I think it spoils it when they tie their feet together. I like to see them kicking. And above all, at the end, their tongue sticking right out and blue. A quite quite bright blue 
That's the detail that appeals to me. Next, please, yelled the white-aproned prole with the ladle. Winston and Sim pushed their way, pushed their trays beneath the grill. Onto each was dumped swiftly the regulation lunch, a metal pannikin of pinkish-grey stew, a hunk of bread, a cube of cheese, a mug of milkless victory coffee, and one saccharine tablet. There's a table over there, under the telescreen, said Sim. Let's pick up the gin on the way. The gin was served out to them in handleless china mugs. They threaded their way across the crowded room and unpacked their trays onto the metal-topped table, on one corner of which someone had left a pool of stew, a filthy liquid mess that had the appearance of vomit. Winston took up his mug of gin, paused for an instant to collect his nerve and gulped the oily, tasty stuff down. When he had winked the tears out of his eyes, he suddenly discovered that he was hungry. He began swallowing spoonful, spoonfuls of the stew, which, in among its general sloppiness, had cubes of spongy, pinkish stuff, which was probably a preparation of meat. Neither of them spoke again till they had emptied their pannikins. From the table at Winston's left, a little behind his back, someone was talking rapidly and continuously, a harsh gabble, almost like the quacking of a duck, which pierced the general uproar of the room. "'How's the dictionary getting on?' said Winston, raising his voice to overcome the noise. "'Slowly,' said Sim. "'I'm on the objectives. It's fascinating.' He had brightened up immediately at the mention of Newspeak. He pushed his pannikin aside, took up his hunk of bread in one delicate hand and his cheese in the other, and leaned across the table so as to speak without shouting. The 11th edition is the definitive edition, he said. We're getting the language into its final shape, the shape it's going to have when nobody speaks anything else. When we're finished with it, people like you will have to learn it all over again. You think, I dare say, that our chief job is inventing new words but not a bit of it. We're destroying words, scores of them, hundreds of them every day. We're cutting the language down to the bone. The 11th edition won't contain a single word that will become obsolete before the year 2050. He bit hungrily into his bread and swallowed a couple of mouthfuls, then continued speaking with a sort of pedant's passion. His thin, dark face had become animated. His eyes had lost their mocking expression and grown almost dreamy. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Of course, the great wastage in the verbs and objectives, but there are hundreds of nouns that can be got rid of as well. It is only synonyms that are also, there are also antisynonyms. After all, what justification is there for a word which is simply the opposite of some other word? A word contains its opposite in itself. Take good, for instance. If you have a word like good, what need is there for a word like bad? Ungood will do just as well. Better, because it's an exact opposite, which is not, which is the other, which the other is not. Or again, if you want a stronger version of good, what sense is there in having a whole string of vague, useless words like excellent and splendid and all the rest of them? Plus good covers the meaning, or double plus good 
if you want something stronger still. Of course, we use those forms already, but in the final version of Newspeak, there'll be nothing else. In the end, the whole notion of goodness and badness will be governed, covered by only six words. In reality, only one word. Don't you see the beauty of it, Winston? It was Big B. It was BB's idea originally, of course, he added in an afterthought. A sort of vapid eagerness flitted across Winston's face at the mention of Big Brother. Nevertheless, Sim immediately detected a certain lack of enthusiasm. You haven't a, a real appreciation of newspeak, Winston, he said, almost sadly. Even when you write it, you're still thinking in old speak. I've read some of those pieces you write in the Times occasionally. They're good enough, but the translations, but they're translations. In your heart, you'd prefer to stick to old speak with all its vagueness and its useless shades of mean meaning. You don't grasp the beauty of destruction of words. Do you know that Newspeak is the only language in the world whose vocabulary gets smaller every year? Winston did know that, of course. He smiled sympathetically. He hoped, not trusting himself to speak. Sim bit off another fragment of the dark-coloured bread, chewed it briefly and went on. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible, impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that can ever be needed will be repeated by exactly one word, with its meaning rigidly defined and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. Already in the 11th edition, we're not far from that point, but the process will be still continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year, fewer and fewer words and the range of consciousness always a little smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason or excuse for committing thought crime. But in the end, there won't be any need even for that. The revolution will be, a comp will be complete when the language is perfect. Newspeak is Inksock and Inksock is Newspeak, he added with a sort of mystical satisfaction. Has it ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand such a conversation as we are having now? Except, began Winston doubtfully, and then stopped. It had been on the tip of his tongue to say, except the prose, but he checked himself, not feeling fully certain that this remark was not in some way unorthodox. Sim, however, had divined what he was about to say. The proles are not human beings, he said carelessly. By 2050, earlier, probably, all real knowledge of old speak will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in new speak versions, and not merely changed into something different, but actually changed into something contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have slogans like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought, as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. One of these days, thought Winston with sudden deep conviction, 
Sim will be vaporised. He's too intelligent. He sees too clearly and speaks too plainly. The party does not like such people. One day he will disappear. It is written in his face. Winston had finished his bread and cheese. He turned a little sideways in his chair to drink his mug of coffee. At the table, on his left, the man with the strident voice was still talking remorselessly away. A young woman, who was perhaps his secretary and who was sitting with her back to Winston, was listening to him and seemed to be eagerly agreeing with everything that he said. From time to time, Winston caught some remark as, I think you're so right, I think I do so agree with you, uttered in a youthful and rather silly feminine voice, but the other voice never stopped for an instant. Even when the girl was speaking, Winston knew the man by sight, though he knew no more about him than he held some important post in the fiction department. He was a man of about 30, with a muscular throat and a large mobile mouth. His head was thrown back a little, and because of the angle at which he was sitting, his spectacles caught the light and presented to Winston two black discs instead of eyes. What was slightly horrible was that from the stream of sound that poured out of his mouth, it was almost impossible to distinguish a single word. Just once Winston caught a phrase, complete and final elimination of Goldsteinism, jerked out very rapidly, as it seemed all in one piece, like a line of type cast solid. For the rest, it was just a noise, a quack, quack, quacking. And yet, though you, th- you could not actually hear what the man was saying, you could not be in any doubt about its general nature. He might be denouncing Goldstein and demanding sterner measures against the thought criminals and saboteurs. He might be fulminating against the atrocities of the Eurasian army. He might be praising Big Brother or the heroes of the Malabar Front. It it made no difference. Whatever it was, you could be certain that every word of it was pure orthodoxy, pure inksock. As he watched the eyeless face with the jaw with the jaw moving rapidly up and down, Winston had a curious feeling that this was not a real human being, but some kind of dummy. It was not the man's brain that was speaking, it was his larynx. The stuff that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was a noise uttered in unconsciousness, like the quacking of a duck. Sim had fallen silent for a moment, and with the handle of his spoon was tracing patterns in the puddle of stew. The voice from the other table quacked rapidly on, easily audible in spite of the surrounding din. There's a word in new speak, said Sim. I don't know whether you know it, duck speak, to quack like a duck. It is one of those interesting words that have two contradictory meanings. Applied to an opponent, it is abuse. Applied to someone someone you agree with, it is praise. Unquestionably, Sim will be vaporised, Winston thought again. He thought it with a kind of sadness, although well knowing that Sim despised him and slightly disliked him and was fully capable of denouncing him as a thought criminal if he saw any reason for doing so. There was something subtly wrong with Sim. There was something that he lacked, discretion, aloofness, a sort of saving stupidity. You could not say that he was unorthodox. He believed in the principles of Ingsoc, He venerated Big Brother, he rejoiced over victories, he hated heretics not merely with sincerity but with a sort of restless zeal, an up-to-dateness of information which the ordinary party member did not approach. 
yet a fair air of distributability always clung to him. He said things that would have been better unsaid. He read too many books. He frequented the Chestnut Tree Café, haunt of painters and musicians. There was no law, not even an unwritten law, against frequenting the Chestnut Tree Café, yet the place was somehow ill-omened. The old discredited leaders of the party had been used to gather there before they were finally purged. Goldstein himself, it was said, had sometimes, had sometimes been there himself years and decades ago. Sim's fate was not difficult to foresee, and yet it was a fact that if Sim grasped, even for three seconds, the nature of, of his, Winston's secret opinions, he would betray him instantly to the thought police. So would anybody else, for that matter. But Sim was more than most. Zeal was not enough. Orthodoxy was unconsciousness. Sim looked up. Here comes Parsons, he said. Something in the tone of his voice seemed to add, that bloody fool Parsons. Winston's fellow tenant of Victory Mansions was in fact threading his way across the room, a tubby, middle-sized man with fair hair and a frog-like face. At 35, he was already putting on rolls of fat at neck and waistline, but his movements were brisk and boyish. His whole appearance was that of a little boy, grown large. So much so that although he was wearing the regulation overalls, it was almost impossible not to think of him as being dressed in blue shorts, grey shirt and red neckerchief of the spies. In visualising him, one always saw a picture of dimpled knees and sleeves rolled back from pudgy, pudgy forearms. Parsons did, indeed, invariably revert to shorts when a community hike or any other physical activity gave him an excuse for doing so. He greeted them both with a cheery, Hello, hello! And yet, and sat down at the table, giving off an intense smell of sweat. Beads of moisture stood out all over his pink face. His powers of sweating were extraordinary. At the community centre, you could always tell when he had been playing table tennis by the dampness of the bat handle. Sim had produced a strip of paper on which there were a long column of words and was studying it with an ink pencil between his fingers. Look at him working away in the lunch hour said Parsons, nudging Winston. Keenness, sir. Eh? What's that you've got there, old boy? Something a bit too brainy for me, I expect. Smith, old boy. I'll tell you why I'm chasing you. It's that sub you forgot to give me. Which sub is that, said Winston, automatically fe feeling for money. About a quarter of one's salary had to be earmarked for voluntary subscriptions, which were so numerous that it was difficult to keep track of them. For hate week, you know, the house by house fund. I'm treasurer of our block. We're making an all-out effort, going to put on a tremendous show. I tell you, it won't be my fault if old Victory Mansions doesn't have the biggest outfit of flags in the whole street. Two dollars, you promise me? Winston found and handed over two creased and filthy notes, which Parsons entered in a small notebook in the neat handwriting of the illiterate. By the way, old boy, he said, I hear the little beggar of that little beggar of mine let fly with you with, you with his catapult yesterday. I gave him a good dressing down for it. In fact, I told him I'd take the catapult away if he, he does it again. I think he was a little upset at not going to the execution, said Winston. 
Ah, well, what I mean to say shows the right spirit, doesn't it? Mischievous little beggars they are, both of them. But talk about keenness. All they think about is the spies and the war, of course. Do you know that what that little girl of mine did last Saturday when her troop was on a hike out Burke Hampstead Way? She got two of the girls to go with her, slipped off from the hike and spent the whole afternoon following a strange man. They kept on his tail for two, trail for two hours right through the woods and then when they got to Amersham, handed him over to the pr patrols. What did they do that for? said Winston, some, somewhat taken aback. Parsons went on triumphal, triumphantly. My kids made sure he was some kind of enemy agent. Might have even dropped by a parachute, for instance. But here's the point, old boy. What do you think put her onto him in the first place? She spotted he was wearing a funny kind of shoes. She said she'd seen, not seen anyone wearing shoes like that before. So the chances he was a foreigner. Pretty smart for a nipper of seven, eh? What happened to the man, said Winston. Ah, that I couldn't say, of course. But I wouldn't be altogether surprised if... Parsons made the motion of a, aiming a rifle and clicked his tongue for the explosion. Good, said Sim, abstractly, without looking up from his strip of paper. Of course, we can't afford to take chances, agreed Winston dutifully. What I mean to say is, there's a war on, said Parsons. As though in confirmation of this, a trumpet call floated from the telescreen just above their heads. However, it was not the proclamation of a military victory this time, but merely an, an announcement from the Ministry of Plenty. Comrades, cried an eager, youthful voice. Attention, comrades. We have glorious news for you. We have won the battle of production. Returns now completed of the output of all classes of consumption goods show that the standard of living has risen by no less than 20% over the past year. All over Oceania, this morning there were irrepressible spontaneous demonstrations when workers marched out of factories and offices and paraded through the streets with banners voicing their gratitude to Big Brother for the new happy life which his wise leadership has bestowed upon us. Here are some of the completed figures. Foodstuffs. The phrase, our new happy life, reoccurred several times. It had been a favourite of late with the Ministry of Plenty. Parsons, his attention caught by the trumpet corps, sat listening with a sort of gaping solemnity, a sort of edified boredom. He could not follow the figures, but he was aware that they were in some way a cause for satisfaction. He had lugged out a huge and filthy pipe which was already half full of charred tobacco. With the, toba with the tobacco ration at a hundred grams a week, it was seldom possible to fill a pipe up at, to the top. Winston was smoking a victory cigarette, which he held carefully horizontal. The new ration did not start till tomorrow, and he had only four cigarettes left. For the moment, he had shut his ears to the remote, rem remoter noises and was listening to the stuff that streamed out of the telescreen. It appeared that there had been that there had been even been demonstrations to thank Big Brother for 
raising the chocolate ration to 20 grams a week, and only yesterday he reflected it had been announced that the ration was to be reduced to 20 grams a week. Was it possible that they could swallow that, that after only 24 hours... Yes, they'd swallowed, they'd swallowed it. Parsons swallowed it easily, with the stupidity of an animal. The eyeless creature at the other table swallowed it frantically, passionately, with a furious desire to track down, denounce and vaporise anyone who would suggest that last week the ration had been 30 grams. Sim, too, in some complex way involving doublethink, Sim swallowed it. He was, then, alone in the possession of a memory. The fabulous statistics continued to pour out of the telescreen. As compared with last year, there was more food, more clothes, more houses, more furniture, more cooking pots, more fuel, more ships, more helicopters, more books, more babies, more of everything except disease, crime and insanity. Year by year and minute by minute, everybody and everything was whizzing rapidly upwards as Sim had, gone, as Sim had done earlier. Winston had taken up his spoon and was dabbing in the pale-coloured gravy that dribbled across the table, drawing a long streak of it out into a pattern. He meditated resentfully on the physical texture of life. Had it always been like this? Had food always tasted like this? He looked round the canteen, a low-ceilinged, crowded room, its walls grimy from the contact of innumerable bodies, battered metal tables and chairs placed so close together that you sat with elbows touching, bent spoons, dented trays, coarse with coarse white mugs, all surfaces greasy, grime in every crack and a scourish composite smell of bad gin and bad coffee and metallic stew and dirty clothes. Always in your stomach and in your skin there was a sort of protest, a feeling that you had been cheated of something that you had you had a right to. It was true that he had no memories of anything greatly different. In any time that he could have that he could accurately remember, there had never been quite enough to eat. One had never had socks or underclothes that were not full of holes. Furniture had always been battered and rickety. Rooms underheated, tube trains crowded, houses falling to pieces, bread dark coloured, tea a rarity, coffee filthy tasting, cigarettes insufficient, nothing cheap and plentiful except synthetic gin. And of course, and though of course it grew worse as one's body aged, was it not a sign that this was not the natural order of things? If one's heart sickened at the discomfort and dirt and scarcity, the interminable winters, the sickness of one's socks, the lifts that never worked, the cold water, the gritty soap, the cigarettes that came to pieces, the food with its strange evil tastes. Why should one feel it to be intolerable unless one had some kind of ancestral memory that things had once been different? He looked round the canteen again. Nearly everyone was ugly and would still have been ugly even if dressed otherwise then in the uniform blue overalls. On the far side of the room, sitting at a table alone, a small, curiously beetle 
like a man was drink, drinking a cup of coffee. His eyes, his little eyes were darting suspicious glances from side to side. How easy it was, thought Winston, if you did not look about you to believe that the physical type set by the party was an I- ideal. Tall, muscular youths and deep-bosomed maidens, blonde-haired, vital, sunburnt, carefree, existed in existed and even predominated actually so far he could ju- he could judge the majority of people in airstrip 1 were small dark and ill-favored it was curious how the beetle-like type proliferated in the ministries like dump- dumpy men growing stout very early in life with short legs swift scuttling movements and fat inscrutable faces with very small eyes it was the type that seemed to flourish best under the domin- domination, dominion of the party. The announcement from the Ministry of Plenty ended on another trumpet call and gave way to tinny music. Parsons, stirred to vague enthusiasm by the bombardment of figures, took his pipe out of his mouth. The Ministry of Plenty's certainly done a good job this year, he said with a knowing shake of his head. By the way, Smith, old boy, I suppose you haven't got any razor blades you can let me have. Not one, said Winston. I've been using the same blade for six weeks myself. Ah, well, just thought I'd ask you, old boy. Sorry, said Winston. The quacking voice from the next table, temporarily silenced during the ministry's announcement, had stirred up again as loud as ever. For some reason, Winston suddenly found himself thinking of Mrs Parsons with her wispy hair and the dust in the creases of her face. Within two years, those children would be denouncing her to the Thought Police. Mrs Parsons would be vaporised. Sim would be vaporised. Winston would be vaporised. O'Brien would be vaporised. Parsons, on the other hand, would never be vaporised. The eyeless creature with the quacking voice would never be vaporised. The little beetle-like men who scrutinised so nimbly through the labyrinth corridors of ministries they too would never be vaporized and the girl with dark hair the girl from the fiction department she would never be vaporized either it seemed to him that he knew instinctively who would survive and who would perish though just what it was that made for survival it was not easy to say at this moment he was dragged out of his reverie with a violent jerk The girl at the table next had turned partly round and was looking at him. It was the girl with dark hair. She was looking at him in a sideway, in a sidelong way, but with a curious intensity. The instant that she caught his eye, she looked away again. The sweat started out on Winston's backbone. A horrible pang of terror went through him. It was gone almost at once, but it left a short short, sort of nagging uneasiness behind. Why was she watching him? Why did she keep following him about? Unfortunately, he could not remember whether she had already been at the table when he arrived or had come there afterwards. But yesterday, at any rate, during the two minutes' hate, she had sat immediately behind him when there were no apparent when there was no apparent need to do so. Quite likely, her real object had been to listen to him and make sure whether he was shouting loudly enough. His earlier thought returned to him, 
probably she was not actually a member of the Thought Police, but then it was precisely the amateur spy who was the greatest danger of at all. Danger of, of, at all. He did not know how long she had been looking at him, but perhaps for just as a, a five minutes, and it was possible that his features had not been perfectly under control. It was terribly dangerous to, dangerous to let your thoughts wander when you were in any public place or within range of a telescreen. The smallest thing could give you away, a nervous tick, an unconscious look of anxiety, a habit of muttering to yourself, anything that carried with, with it the suggestion of abnormality, of having something to hide, in any case, to wear an improper expression on your face, to look incredulous when a victory was announced, for example, was itself a punishable offence. There was even a word for it in the newspeak face crime, it was called. In the newspeak face crime, it was called. The girl had turned her back on him again. Perhaps after all, she was not really following him about. Perhaps it was a coincidence that she sat close to him in two days running. His cigarette had gone out and he laid it carefully on the edge of the table. He, could, he would finish smoking it after work if he could keep the tobacco in it. Quite likely, the person at the ta next table was a spy of the thought police and quite likely he would be in the cellars of the Ministry of Love within three days, but a cigarette end must not be wasted. Sim had folded, folded up his strip of paper and stowed it away in his pocket. Parsons had begun talking again. Did I ever tell you, old boy, he said, chuckling around the stem of his pipe, about the time when those two nippers of mine set fire to an old market woman's skirt because they saw her wrapping up sausages in a poster of BB. Sneaked up behind her and set fire to it with a box of matches. Burned her quite badly, I believe, little beggars. Huh? But keen as mustard, that's a first-rate first rate training they gave them in the spies nowadays. Better than in my day, even. What do you think the latest thing they've served them them out with ear trumpets for listening through keyholes my little girl bought one home the other night tried it out on our sitting room door and reckoned she could hear twice as much with her ear to ear to the hole of course it's only a toy mind you still gives them the give them the right idea eh? at this moment the telescreen let out a piercing whistle it was the signal to return to work all three men sprang to their feet to join the, join in the struggle round the lifts and the remaining tobacco fell out of Winston's cigarette.